Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34. An investigation by the Associated Press discovered that Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, aided a pro-Russian political party in Ukraine to secretly route at least $2.2 million to prominent lobbying firms in Washington. The scheme was organized in ways that covered the foreign party's attempts to influence U.S. policy. This occurs at a time when Trump has had reproach for his praise of Russian President Vladimir Putin. As part of federal law, U.S. lobbyists must notify the Justice Department if they support foreign leaders or their political parties. It is a felony to violate this, and it can result in up to five years in prison and a fine of $250,000. In Texas, a little-known law is raising concerns about free speech, and it centers around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The law, known as House Bill 89, prohibits governmental entities from contracting with companies and people that have or will, quote, boycott Israel. That means if you ever want a state job in Texas, you have to sign a contract pledging you do not participate in economic protests of Israel. The pro-Israel law passed last year with bipartisan support and little debate. In fact, not a single member of the Texas House voted against HB 89. At least 23 other states have similar legislation, so-called anti-BDS laws. In the weeks before President Donald Trump visited Saudi Arabia on his first foreign trip, the Saudi government hired three U.S. lobbying firms to do its bidding in Washington. Federal records show that among these included an obscure group made up of former Trump advisors that will receive $5.4 million for one year's work. In a bid to improve frayed relations with the United States since Trump's election, the Saudis have now added six U.S. lobbying firms. The country seeks to capitalize on a president who skewered them as a candidate but is now seen as an ally. So today we're going to be talking with Ken Silverstein. He is a journalist that has been covering lobbyists and sleazy Washington politics for well over 20 years. Um, he is the editor of Washington Babylon. And I invited Ken on the podcast today because I wanted to talk specifically about foreign lobbyists and how they influence our government. Um Initially, Ken, you went undercover as a fictitious business person with investments investments in Turkmenistan, and you did an undercover expose on the entire sleazy um, aspects of lobbying firms influencing um, politicians and PR groups. Tell us a little bit about that experience and some of the worst things that you saw. It was for Harper's. It was called Bear Men in Washington, and I think it's actually a Harper's and almost everything is behind the paywall, but I think that story is available. Um, I contacted a bunch of top-name Washington lobby shops. I said I was an American living in London working for an unnamed Lebanese gentleman with oil and gas interest in Turkmenistan, one of the world's worst dictatorships. It's definitely on the top five list. I said, hey... Uh, Turkmenistan is undergoing it's an emerging democracy. The new president, uh, the dictator had died, and the new dictator took over. And I, I remember the meat, well, especially oil and gas companies, and it was reflected in the media were saying this guy might be a reformer. I mean, he was he was the dictator's chosen man. He ran unopposed. I mean, he was ruthless. from Turkmenistan, and I apologize if I'm butchering that name. The reason you've never heard of Turkmenistan's current dictator is twofold. 
The first one is probably that no one has any idea how to pronounce his name. Second, he took over from Sapper Murad Niazov, a man so crazy he ordered a giant ice palace built in the middle of the desert, banned beards, and used a national fund to launch his own autobiography into space. But if people weren't expecting his successor to be any better, they were soon disappointed. Although less crazy, Gerben Guli has made a name for himself by allowing his security services to disappear or torture anyone they feel like. Since this torture often includes rape, electrocution, and medical experimentation, it's probably fair to say that Gerben Guli's encroaching on Hitler's territory with his psychosis. Like his predecessor, he's also written a book, this time on horse breeding. What an oddly sweet topic for a man who made it illegal to leave your hometown under penalty of torture. So he was, he was not an emerging democracy. We need you to make Turkmenistan look good. And <clears throat> I contacted four big firms. Um, two of them declined, as I recall. We had communication, but I, I you know, it's been so long. Um, I'm not sure they declined. Um, but I picked, you know, I, could, I didn't want to go undercover to four firms. And, you know, I really, I can't honestly say whether they declined or, I don't think they did decline. But I think I got the most enthusiastic response from APCO Associates and, and Cassidy, two of the biggest law, uh, lobby and PR firms in town. Uh, they all have horrible clients. I, I don't even know who they work for now. But I went in, I pretended I lived in London. I had a London cell phone, and I'd be calling them from that sitting in my home, desperately afraid that an ambulance or police car would come by, and they would realize, hold it, that's a U.S., that doesn't sound like a British ambulance. I'd call them, set up meetings, told them I was trying, flying in on a private jet. Um, a friend of mine who helped me, who knows the lobbying world, she said, oh, tell them you're flying in on a private jet. That gives lobbyists a bonus, because they know that means big money. I I didn't shave my beard off, but I, I, I a former CIA guy told me, look, they might recognize you, but the way to oh, because also one of the lobbyists was a former CIA spokeswoman, Jennifer or something. I can't remember. Part, the part of her last name is Dick, D-Y-C-K. And anyway, it's like Dick, Dick Worthy or something like that. Um, that's not it. But anyway, I was afraid she'd recognize my boy. <laughs> he said, uh, change the shape of your, I got a Euro trash beard, you know, shaved down to, I forget what it's called, but just a thin little beard. And I, I got fake glasses. He said, all you got to do is change the shape of your face. Only your mother will recognize you if you do that. So I went into these firms. Um, they had both prepared lengthy presentations. I met with top lobbyists from both the firms. They were kissing my butt. Yeah. I'm not sure if I can say ass, yeah, but you can say ass. Yeah. They were. <laughs> Oh, can I say the F word? Yes. <laughs> I thought so. On radio, you actually aren't supposed to do that. That's true. They were kissing my ass. I maintained correspondence, and I had all the, I still have probably most of it, the correspondence with these clowns. Uh, so, Apto, I believe, wanted a million. I could be wrong. It's in the story. I'm sure I blogged about it. I was at Harper's then, and I had a, uh, I created the Harper's blog, which no longer exists after I left. My personal website, WashingtonBabylon.com, which I hope your listeners will go to. Cassidy, I distinctly recall, they were like, well, you know, we can do it. You know, we can make black look white. But, um, we, uh, it's, you know, you can't do this quickly. Um, 
It's going to, we proposed a three year, $5 million contract. They didn't care. You know, the thing was my, my cover was so flimsy. I had a, a business card that was like cardboard mm-hmm. um, saying I worked for, uh, I think it was the Malden Group. I named it after the Malden Group. I named it after a, a salt company in Britain. And my name was Kenneth Case. I was told by the CIA guy, don't have a different first name. I mean, I go by Ken, but I figured, he said, if you're walking down the hall and somebody calls David, that's, if that's your name, mm. you're not going to turn around. Right. So, yeah. Anyway, so they were begging for the work. I, I mean, I got their proposals. They were pretty devastating in terms of, you know, partly it was devastating because they offered to work for one of the world's worst dictatorships, which was bad enough. Um, right. Um, and, and partly it was bad because they were so greedy. They saw me as a big paycheck. They saw me as dollars mm-hmm. because my cover was so thin. I mean, I had a, a, a crappy business card, a London cell phone, a website that just had a homepage, the Malden Group, with the phone number that went to my website. And it was registered somewhere in Pennsylvania. Yeah. I mean, if they had done any work, they would have right, There's something right. weird about this guy. You know, well, they tried to deny it, except I had too much documentation. Right. They got Howard Kurtz, who's now, he was at the Washington Post then. He was actually well-regarded at one time, but he found his natural bottom at Fox News. He attacked me in the Washington Post. I mean, it was a front page, it was on the style section, front page, my picture. I was like, great. I, I told him, hey, thanks, jerk face. You just increased our newsstand sales by about 5,000 copies this month. Right. Right. I, lo- I love being attacked. I mean, that means you're, you hit home. Right. Um, so anyway, I mean, it was it's pretty pathetic. What they offered to do was um, shape the media environment. APCO said, we have a guy on staff. All he does is get like academics and experts, think tank people. Uh, 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 he'll write the op-ed for them and get them to sign it mm-hmm. and pay them. Um, and so we'll, we'll place a lot of those. He said, we can't do the New York times, but we can do second, second tier, like Houston Chronicle. He mentioned, I don't remember where else. Um, I believe they now can do the New York times. I don't, I think at that time they couldn't, but we're 10 years under the times is so corrupt. I, I bet they get a lot of ghost written op-eds. And, and I remember AFCO said, look, we'll set up an event for you. Um, and, you know, you don't have to pay for the refreshments, but it's not going to cost a lot. Mm-hmm. And whatever we get charged, if there's a, <clears throat> you know, I think they said they could get the space for free. Mm-hmm. But they said, we're not going to call it, you know, Turkmenistan Democracy Day. That'll be too obvious. <laughs> we'll call it Tasbian, Tasbian Basin Oil Event. Oh, Jesus. And we'll, but we'll control who speaks and we'll know what they're going to say. We'll have total control over it. You know, journalists pretend they won't know um, that we're behind it and you're behind it. You know, um, you know they come. I mean, beyond the obvious stuff, they could easily set up meetings right. with members of Congress and the administration. We can't legally fly a congressional delegation over there, but what we can do, it's legal for a think tank to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can arrange a Turkmen think tank. To pay the bills, but we'll we'll be paying, but we'll give them the money and they'll pay. I mean, they offered to do things that were flat out illegal. At a certain point, I I, I pulled the, 
the bullet <laughs> and wrote them and said, Hey guys, uh, Kenneth Case, I'm really Ken Silverstein. I'm writing a piece for Harper's. They went through the roof. I was on NPR for an hour with a lobbyist from AFCO. Ken Silverstein, the Washington editor of Harper's Magazine, wondered what lobbyists promise to do for foreign governments, how they do it, and how much of it is visible to Congress and the public. To find out, Silverstein went undercover. What he found and how he found it are both controversial. Ken Silverstein joins us here in Studio 3A. His Harper, his article in Harper's is called Their Men in Washington, and it's nice to have you on the show today. Thank you very much. So why did you do this? Well, the idea that lobbyists for foreign dictatorships are not entirely ethical is not a brand new idea. So that wasn't really the main point of the story, although we did want to show as opposed to simply tell, which is why we opted in part. There were a number of reasons we opted for an undercover route. But the real political point of the story, the real whole point of the story, was that these firms are able to operate under the radar screen. They pull strings, they seek to manipulate public opinion and political opinion, and they do their very best to cover their tracks. And we wanted to expose that. The law that applies to foreign lobbyists is from 1938, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, uh, which incidentally was put into place after Hitler hired a PR lobbyist in, in, in the United States. Um, it's been revised several times, but it is not up to the job. And the firms are able to really get away with murder. And to the extent that the law does apply to them, they're easily able to evade it, which is, you know, I, I had a rough idea of that going in. I have a much better idea of that now based on what the lobbyists told me. Mm -hmm. And these were uh, things you couldn't find out with a simple, um, hi, I'm, I'm Ken Silverstein from Harper's Magazine. Do you mind if I talk to you for a few minutes? Absolutely not. There's no way. These firms will tell you that they're all on the up and up and they're transparent and they don't do anything duplicitous but the whole reason you hire a lobbyist is in fact that the firms are able to manipulate their their contacts with members of the administration and with congress they're able to use their access in a way that they can do things for you that the public is simply not aware of let me give you one example apco associates told me that you know, they have a media campaign for Turkmenistan. And they told me that they have someone on staff who does nothing but plant op-eds in newspapers. That's his job. Great job, right? Um, I was all over the news. It's not one of the best stories I ever wrote in my life, but it's a very good one. And in terms of a media impact, it was probably the biggest story I ever wrote. Anyway, so that was, that was the story. I think I've mm -hmm. covered most of the points. So um, I want to uh, actually rediscuss something that you mentioned in passing that I think has a huge impact in not just with foreign lobbyists, but with propaganda in the country in general. Think tanks are often viewed by the public as being some sort of academic, independent, uh, mm -hmm. integrity type of an institution, and they're really not. So you're talking about this connection between the think tank because they could legally do things that the lobbyist firm couldn't without registering as a foreign agent. And mm -hmm. and and the ghostwriting that they do that gets placed into major um, journalistic publications. And I think you're right. I think the New York Times definitely does this at this point. It's, it's no oh, longer yeah. the they fourth probably, estate. They may have done it back then, but... They're no longer the fourth estate. They're the fourth fixer-upper. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. They are a central pillar of the establishment. Um, they are... A institution that is as corrupt and dishonest as ExxonMobil. Mm -hmm. 
but people look at the media just like think tanks. Well, I think people look at the media with even more skepticism than they do think tanks, but they don't look with enough skepticism about either. They are a central pillar of, you know, I, you know, look, I don't know whether I would call myself a Marxist or not, but I'm not far from one. My politics are on the left. I don't like to, you know, name my political viewpoints after a guy who's been dead for so long. But I do believe that Marx was wrong about a lot of things, but he was way ahead of his time. And, you know, the ruling class, I don't think he was probably the originator of that term. So I think it's a central pillar of the ruling elite. You know, sure, they, you know, the New York Times will do some great stories, the Washington Post will do some great stories, but for the most part, it's, it's not impressive. They spend a lot of money and they have a lot of resources and they do, you know, maybe 1% of what they do is good stuff. The rest is, you know, press releases and right. opinion pieces. You know, the opinion pages reflect the outer limits of elite opinion. Think tanks are very useful. I see them as undisclosed lobbyists. Because, okay. because people think they're independent, academic, intellectual, right. and they're not. I mean, very few are. You know, they have, like, membership rewards programs. The more you give, the more you get. You get um, yeah. benefit. Let's talk about that for one second. Paul Manafort was recently indicted on charges of uh, failing to register as a foreign agent. And we've had uh -huh. these laws on the book for years, and they've never been really used until now. Um, and is that because foreign lobbying is so prevalent and accepted in Washington? And, and if so, why did it take this episode for these laws to finally be utilized? I find it completely strange that this was the uh, the final, you know, straw. It's a political witch hunt. <clears throat> what everyone thinks of Donald Trump, and I don't like him, although I do, for the most part, admire his neo-isolationist foreign policy. Andrew Stewart, a very good writer, did a piece at WashingtonBabylon.com yesterday, I believe, okay. uh, where where he talked about this. I, so I don't want to talk a lot on this, but, you know, I admire his neo-isolationist foreign policy, even if he does things for the wrong reasons. I'm glad he, so far, I mean, he's dropped a lot of bombs, and I'm opposed to that. But he hasn't gotten us into a war, whereas I think Hillary would have. Um, the Democrats have a harder time because they're afraid, really afraid, of being accused of being liberal. Um, and then with Bill Clinton in particular, the, you know, the Democratic Leadership Council, I'm not sure it still exists, but it was a con conservative Democratic think tank that took over the party. It turned it into a wing of, you know, it became... The Democratic Leadership Council, a laboratory for moderate Democratic policy ideas and once chaired by Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton, is folding. The DLC was the preeminent moderate think tank of the last three decades. They came along in the mid-80s and really sought to yank the Democratic Party towards the center. The DLC generated many of the ideas Clinton took with him to the White House. Bennett's organization, Third Way, has taken its place in one sense, but the DLC was more than a think tank. The DLC was a kind of moderate Democratic Party inside a liberal Democratic Party. Uh, it worked uh, particularly in the South and the border states, some of the rural Midwestern states, the Western states, to recruit more conservative Democrats. But now 
moderate House Democrats complain they get no respect that former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi snubs them even as their ranks are dwindling. There were 54 going into the elections, but only 25 survived because swing voters didn't like the direction of the Democratic Party. We were going further to the left than we should have, and the people who gave the Democrats a chance in 2006 and 2008 decided they were going to go a different direction. Some Democrats, Pelosi chief among them, think Democrats were punished in November because they weren't liberal enough, which is why many liberals screamed betrayal and threatened to block President Obama's compromise on tax cuts. GOP light, and they cut off the base, African Americans, women, Latinos, um, you know, the, the, the people who got into the Democratic Party with protesting the Vietnam War and Nixon were abandoned in favor of the corporation. Trump's domestic policy, domestic policy is impossible. I mean, I'm doing a lot of reporting on immigration and these detention camps. You're not supposed to take camps, but they are detention camps. They're prisons. Uh, yeah, and a lot of people, there are some bad people in there, criminals, but I would say 80% or more are um, uh, hardworking people. They get picked up because they got a lawnmower in the back of their truck and they're racially profiled and stuff like that. I am revolted by Trump's immigration policy, his tax cuts for the rich. His domestic policies are appalling. So anyway, <clears throat> Russiagate is bullshit. You know, he's a, he's a crooked businessman. He took in a lot of dirty money, but from Russia, from China, from Israel, from all over the place. I mean, he took dirty money and some clean money, and he had these overseas projects. He's not a tool of Vladimir Putin. But because Hillary lost, the Democratic Party establishment could not accept that, so they've been blaming everybody and anything else ever since I mean, they tried to block his, you know, they tried to block his um, inauguration. Yeah. Uh, that's where Russiagate comes from. I mean, well, it actually comes from uh, Marco Rubio's campaign. Uh, the big donor, Paul Singer, paid for the original research. Yeah, I'm joined by Associated Press reporter Tom LaBianco. So for people who haven't been following as closely, this is something, this is a document that we started hearing about really in the fall of last year, as the campaigns were in full swing. That's right. I mean, there's some uh, great reporting by uh, Mother Jones, uh, where they interviewed who would, would later turn out to be Christopher Steele himself. Uh, it got lost in the mix at that point, but uh, you know, as we see here, it's just an ever-growing ever importance behind this document. And the, you know, the latest revelation was a big one, uh, this connection with uh, Free Beacon, uh, and uh, potentially uh, Paul Singer, the uh, Republican uh, billionaire, Republican donor, mega donor. Uh, so, uh, you know, tons of drama involved here, um, an incredible amount of importance. And, you know, it ties, of course, right back into all the Russia investigations that we're seeing. Now, the, the Trump administration, a lot of conservatives say this document was the basis for the entire Mueller investigation, right? It's frankly outrageous and highly irresponsible for a left-wing blog that was openly hostile to the president-elect's campaign to drop highly salacious and flat-out false information on the Internet just days before he takes the oath of office. According to BuzzFeed's own editor, there are some serious reasons to doubt the allegations in the report. The executive editor of the New York Times 
also dismissed the report by saying it was, quote, totally unsubstantiated, echoing the concerns that many other reporters expressed on the Internet. Uh, that became the BuzzFeed dossier. Yes. The, uh, it was then picked up by the DNC. And, you know, I mean, after that, um, I'm not sure who was doing the work, um, the, the opposition research, but you had rich Democratic donors, including George Soros, funding anti-Trump uh, propaganda, basically, to create the Russiagate narrative. Mm-hmm. And they uh, paid for it, continued to help slice it and get it in the media. Well, they didn't really, I mean, they didn't have to help so much with that. You get the New York Times to write a bullshit Russiagate story. New York Times publishes it. But in that a lot of opposition research going on, digging up dirt that is like about 30% correct, um, it, but it takes one plus one plus one and gets 100. It gets Russian collusion when there was no collusion. Manafort, sleazy guy. If you Google my name and Paul Manafort and Washington Babylon, you'll see a piece I did about it where I call him one of the sleaziest people of, you know, modern times. Right. He's roadkill in this bullshit investigation. <laughs> he did, he lobbied for, he lobbied for, um, a Ukrainian ruler who was, well, president, yeah. who wasn't great, but, the, you know, one of the fundamental lies of Russiagate is that the Ukrainian, I'm blanking on his name, all the Ukrainian politicians are corrupt. I mean, yeah. the pro-Western and the pro-Russian, and which is a little simplistic. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's name. <clears throat> it's terrible. Okay. But the guy that Manafort lobbied for was not, it, the, the thing is, it's like, Oh, he was pro Putin, so Trump is pro Putin because Manafort was his campaign manager. Manafort actually tried to get this is fact, this is not speculation. Anyone with a brain knows it, but it's conveniently ignored. You can find stories about it, but mostly not in the mainstream. They're too stupid and lazy. Manafort lobbied for a guy, he didn't declare it, and that's what you know. That's the excuse. I mean, and you should. Like, if you don't declare, if you don't disclose your lobbying, and then he hid money offshore, apparently, that's all bad. The thing is, there are thousands of Manaforts. Nobody, it's not that, it's not that, you know, they finally decided to enforce it, let's applaud. It's a political witch hunt, and Manafort got caught up in it. I don't mind him being prosecuted, but you could prosecute John Podesta, the Democratic, yeah. uh, you know, this guy. Tony Podesta and his lobbying company, the Podesta Group, are now in the middle of a federal investigation. This after ties were discovered with former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort, which NBC News first reported. The probe of Podesta and his firm stemmed from Robert Mueller's inquiry into the finances of Manafort. Manafort, who served as chairman of President Donald Trump's electoral campaign between March and August 2016, resigned shortly after media reports about his lobbying efforts in Ukraine. 
Between 2012 and 2014, Manafort organized a PR campaign for a nonprofit called the European Center for a Modern Ukraine, also known as ECMU. The campaign, which promoted Ukraine's image, was reportedly backed by the country's government. During Mueller's examination into Podesta's firm and Manafort's role in the campaign, the investigation has now turned into a question of whether the firm violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act, known as FARA. Under FARA, people who lobby on behalf of foreign governments, leaders, or political parties must file detailed disclosures about their spending and other activities with the Justice Department. Failure to do this can result to up to five years in prison. According to the report, Mueller's inquiry into the lobbying campaign appears to be a part of a larger investigation into Manafort's work for the party of regions, his offshore banking transactions, his tax compliance, and his real estate dealings. But in a statement on Monday, a spokesperson for Podesta Group claimed the company was in compliance, citing a series of filings dating back years and is, quote, fully cooperating with the special counsel's office. The state well, should be Rains. prosecuted. I think Philip Rains. What? Philip Rains is another one that's a terrible... Plenty. Well, I don't know. I don't know what if he broke the law. Podesta broke the law. Um, I'm just not sure. Okay. I mean, you may know more about that than I do. But anyway, Manafort did lobby for this guy. Yeah. But he was trying to push him away from Russia and closer to the Western orbit. And the guy himself was not a simple pro-Putin hack controlled by Putin, not at all. He wanted to be more, he wanted Ukraine to be more independent from Putin. He wanted to be more pro-West, not because he's a good guy at all, but because um, Russia has extraordinary influence in Ukraine, and this guy wanted to steal, he and this, he wanted to be able to steal more from the public treasury and help his cronies steal more from the public treasury. Russia was trying to force him into a customs union, which would have been devastating. It would have stopped them from stealing as much. So he, you know, and Manafort was pushing him towards the West. So the whole idea, I mean, so much of the Russiagate narrative is factually false. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to find that in the press. So. Right. Um, you know, and I, I don't disagree with that. It's really frustrating that these laws are used to conveniently be, uh, be yeah. for political expediency as opposed to actually getting the corruption out of D.C. That's, that's the amazing They're not getting the corruption out of D.C. No. Lobbying is going on business as usual. And it's not exactly expediency. The Russiagate investigation, mm-hmm. I've said it's political witch hunt. What it is is it's a criminalization of Trump's foreign policy. Trump, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the... It is a criminalization of his foreign policy. The ruling elite do not want NATO dismantled. I do. That's what Trump said he would do. NATO is basically a vehicle for U.S. arms companies to sell weapons to the former Soviet bloc. Correct. It has creeped up to Russia's border, and that scares Russia, understandably. It would be as if Canada and Mexico suddenly were in the Soviet Soviet. I can't believe I said this. In the Russian orbit. I mean, that's how crazy it is. You, you, you know, the resistance would have you believe that Russia, you know, Russia hasn't been communist in many years. It's a dysfunctional capitalist. It's a dysfunctional capitalist autocracy, much in the same way the U.S. is. They're the two most dysfunctional capitalist countries. You know, 
That's true, Ken. And I often find myself saying to these folks, the real story here isn't the 12 trolls and their dumb, dank memes. It's and there are, there are 100,000 in ads or whatever. Give me a break. It's nothing. The real story here is the corporate oligarchy, and that transcends the borders that we're discussing here. I mean, we're fed more propaganda from from the medium correct the record correct the record correct the record i couldn't get that out um, so it seems all very bizarre it's a joke it's a joke yeah it's a joke it's a joke i agree it is a joke yeah so you in your book um the secret world of oil you discuss the sleazy side and corruption of the oil industry and i think um that's also connected to all of these things so the Saudi regime, I wanted to talk about that for a second, because, you know, we've often called them our friends and allies for years, and they're one of the absolute worst regimes out there, in my opinion. The things that they do are absolutely terrible. Uh, you know, they're connected to 9-11, but they get a free pass on that. The human rights violations in the country, uh, you know, you could go down the list. But now, because the uh, Washington Post reporter was uh, killed by the regime, now all of a sudden it's come to the forefront of discussion. And um, but you were discussing the relationship with oil money uh, in the secret world of oil long before this. Um, and one of the things you talked about, besides the Saudi regime, was the Equatorial Guinea, uh, which is a small country that became oil rich. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And there was a lot of corruption there. Um, so walk us through both of these regimes. The Saudis have been since the end of the Second World War in particular one of our closest allies in the Middle East. Only Israel uh, is a closer ally. Yeah. Yeah, we should talk which about gets more, a second. We should, because they get, you know, they don't have, I'm not sure they have any oil exports at all. But anyway, um, uh, so in Israel gets away with murder. Yeah. Uh, because they, they, because they are, you know, they, they, they I mean, look, I'm obviously not anti-Semitic. I'm very critical of Israel. You can get away with criticizing Israel more in Israel than in the U.S. But in any case, um, Israel, I have to say just real quickly, gets away with murder. I mean, you know, an apartheid state, they're running. The Palestinians, I, I feel terribly for. They deserve a homeland. The Saudis post-World War II. Uh, they have become one of our most important allies. Well, they have enormous oil reserves, among the biggest in the world. <clears throat> so, you know, they get a free, it's really easy. They get a free pass. But they also have, they assisted Iran in Contra. They've assisted various covert operations. Mm -hmm. They, along with the United Arab Emirates, are now leading this horrible war in Yemen, which is about Israel and Iran more than anything else. As the worst humanitarian crisis in the world reached new heights in Yemen earlier this year, the United States was pledging its support to Saudi Arabia by launching a new operation in the war. This revelation comes from Department of Defense documents that were apparently published online unintentionally. They detail the existence of Yukon Journey, which is described as a central command operation supporting the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and 
partner nations in Yemen. Now, while the name of the operation had been released previously, this document provides confirmation that it is occurring in Yemen. Before, the classified endeavor was listed as one of several that were established to combat al-Qaeda and ISIS forces. But now it is becoming clear that the true intent was to continue the United States' unwavering support for Saudi Arabia. So this news becomes even more crucial as the United States publicly claims it will stop refueling Saudi-led coalition aircrafts in Yemen. But the decision appears to be one that was requested by Saudi Arabia. In a statement, the kingdom claimed it is now capable of refueling the aircrafts itself. It does not appear that this change will do anything to prevent the overwhelming number of airstrikes launched by the Saudi-led coalition that target civilian areas. There is also a lot that is still unknown about both Operation Yukon Journey and U.S. involvement on the ground in Yemen. In response to questions about the extent of the classified operations, Central Command refused to give details and instead claimed that, quote, the United States is currently providing limited support to the coalition in the form of logistical assistance, intelligence sharing, best practices, and other advisory support. Congress has yet to specifically authorize military force in Yemen, and right now leaders in the House are being accused of attempting to derail a debate on House Continuing Resolution 138. The legislation would direct the president to remove U.S. armed forces from hostilities in Yemen within 30 days. Um, they, you know, um, Israel is not running the United States. That is anti-Semitic. If you if you if you take that seriously, <clears throat> you know the Jews don't are not puppet masters. That's no. you know that's ugly propaganda. I agree. Um, the Jewish lobby is powerful. The Israel lobby is especially powerful. Mm -hmm. It's two different things. Um, there are yes. plenty of powerful lobbies in the U.S., but the Israel lobby is very strong. Only because you've got. You know, fundamentalist Christians who, you know, want Israel to be the site of Armageddon so that, right. you know, everybody, yeah. But anyway, the Saudis are, you know, one of our, after Israel, our most reliable ally, and they provide us with tons of oil. Mm -hmm. And if OPEC decides, decides to cut supplies and raise the price of oil, the Saudis will increase production and undermine them. So they can get away with things that they want. Equatorial Guinea is even more disgraceful in a way because... Um, it, uh, both of those countries are, you know, extreme violators of human rights, as is the United States. I mean, we're, it's not, I, we, we shouldn't pretend that the U.S. is not as bad as these countries we're talking about. I mean, we have a weird democracy, we have an electoral college, we have immense flaws, we have corporate power that is out of control. So, you know, we're, we're all on the scale of, um, you know, it's close to terrible. On the other hand, you and I couldn't have this conversation in Saudi Arabia or Equatorial Guinea, so that's better. For now, we can have this conversation. Yeah, no anyway, Equatorial Guinea is Nobody cared about it. It was a forgotten place, yeah. really poor. Cocoa was their main export. And then um, uh, a small, I can't remember which small oil company found oil there in the 80s, early 90s. Exxon bought the field that was discovered. Yes, money and investment in oil companies poured in. They, you know, it became the third biggest producer of oil in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then all of a sudden, we love Equatorial Guinea and forget all the horrible human rights abuses there. No one cares because the oil companies have a lot at stake there, and we control the oil. Unlike China has made huge inroads in, well, in certain parts of South America and Central America, as well as um, Africa, specifically because Equatorial Guinea is a West African country. The Chinese have made big inroads in Africa. They offer, I don't think countries are any worse off. They get screwed either way because China, you know, we use American companies um, that are multinational, but fundamentally loyal to the U.S. because, you know, they are U.S. companies, right. Exxon, Chevron, <clears throat> whatever. Um, China offers aid packages. Each is looking out for its own interests. Right. And, and the poor countries get screwed. You know, whether they're headed by dictators or Democrats. But China um, has made big inroads, but Equatorial Guinea, the U.S. oil companies run the show. So, you know, you got a horrible dictator who's been there since 1979, who is going to hand power when he ever dies to his lunatic son, who's used a lot of drugs. If you sit around all day in your Malibu mansion mm -hmm. um, playing video games, you're not much of a leader. Yeah, and this is one of the guys. I read a series of pieces about the corruption that the Obion family and their corruption in homes in the United States. Peter Reed, the son, had a $30 million home in Malibu that the U.S. government took away. I exposed it. Hmm. I wrote about the corruption. And uh, I also did a piece about the, uh, the son of the dictator of Yemen, the past dictator, <clears throat> and his property in Washington was also taken away. But Teterine lost the $30 million. Yes, Teterine Obion of Equatorial Guinea had his $30 million home seized. This six-story townhouse in central Paris was owned by Guinean Vice President Teodorine Obiang, along with a fleet of fast cars and valuable artworks. Those assets have been seized by French prosecutors, who say they were bought with money stolen from his home country's public funds. The house alone is worth 107 million euros, a thousand times his official salary. Obiang has now been handed a three-year suspended sentence for embezzlement and ordered to pay a 30 million euro fine. Equatorial Guinea is a rich country and what we want Africans to see today is that people in power in rich countries will no longer be able, we hope, to keep poaching like thieves in their country's public funds in contempt of their populations. Equatorial Guinea insists the house was a diplomatic mission and says the French justice system is meddling in the affairs of a sovereign state. There is no public money embezzlement. The state of Equatorial Guinea contests this offense, and no one else but the state of Equatorial Guinea is in a position to say if there was an offense committed against its interests or not. Certainly not a French court. This is the first of several corruption cases against current or former African leaders to come to trial in France, and it's an important symbolic victory for transparency campaigners. The idea is that this case will send a strong message to other African leaders that their financial affairs will not escape the French justice system. There are two other ongoing investigations here. One they should have. They should have. They should have done more. He should, most of his of his assets overseas before he couldn't ship his Malibu mansion overseas. Right. He should most like dozens of luxury cars, a Michael Jackson memorabilia. 
all sorts of other stuff. And even worse, his U.S. accountants and lawyers didn't go to prison, which they should have, because they are the ones who facilitated the money laundering and his illegal. He laundered money through U.S. banks. Princeling ain't easy. Son of dictator gives up $30 million. You can have my $30 million, but you'll never get my MJ memorabilia. That's what you could say if you were Teodoro Nguema Obiang Mangue, vice president of Equatorial Guinea and son of the country's ruthless dictator, Teodoro Nguema Obiang Basogo. The princeling, who's something like a globetrotting Kim Jong-il to be, is being forced by the U.S. Department of Justice to give up this big fancy mansion, a $530,000 Ferrari and 10.3 million bucks in funny money, all accumulated by money laundering and taking <coughs> kickbacks. The cash will be used to help the impoverished people of oil-rich Equatorial Guinea, since neither the president nor vice president seem inclined to do that. However, it's not like the U.S. is going to cut off relations with a major oil supplier just because they have the worst score possible for human rights. Ha! Are you nuts? So, Teodoro Nguema Obiang Mangue gets to keep his Gulfstream jet! his thriller jacket, and his most prized possession, Michael Jackson's gem-encrusted white glove from the Bad Tour, for which he paid $482,000 in the late 80s. There. Now don't dictator again, but keep that oil coming. Thanks a million. So, and Teodorine got off lightly because he's still extraordinarily rich. He has homes. He had a home in Brazil. He probably still has it. In France, he's facing, I mean, the French are taking it more seriously. I mean, you know, the <clears throat> French government wants it to go away, but apparently, um, maybe the judiciary is more independent. There's an ongoing case in France and Switzerland against him because he laundered money there. He has, he has a massive property right up to Champs-Élysées um, in Paris, but he has all, <clears throat> he has bigger properties in France and Switzerland than he does here because it's U.S. oil companies. I mean, if they were French oil companies, you know what? Maybe he'd have bigger problems. The Swiss don't have oil companies. Right, right. They have banks. <clears throat> but um, maybe it's easier for them to go after him because they don't have billions at stake in Equatorial Guinea. They're not running the country fundamentally. But the shameful part is, you know, Saudi Arabia, you can't tell Saudi Arabia what to do. They have too much money. BG has a lot of money, but the U.S. has so much influence in its U.S. oil companies. The U.S. government could say, look, stop killing your own people, stop jailing them, stop being a dictatorship, or right. we are going to slowly withdraw. But they won't do it because in EG, the only, Equatorial Guinea, the only threat they have is, you know, well, we'll replace you with the Chinese or the Malaysians. But, but you know, U.S. oil companies have the best technology. They don't want to do that. <clears throat> you know, they have offshore deep water stuff that the U.S. companies are in a better position to extract, produce, and make money for EG and for themselves. Right. And even even other, they weren't the U.S. There's a prestige of the U.S. I mean, with Trump, the international prestige has fallen. But Exxon's, you know, one of the biggest companies in the world. They don't want... Petronas. Have you ever heard of Petronas? No, no. Who is Petronas? It's a Malaysian oil company. Okay. You don't want the Chinese state oil company. Oh, you want Exxon no. and Chevron. <clears throat> and so, you know, they they do have some leverage and they can threaten to go to the Chinese or Malaysian oil companies, uh -huh. but they don't want to do that. So we, we, the U.S. government, I don't like to say we because 
I'm a citizen of this country, but I don't like to, you know, the U.S. government does not speak for me. Exactly. Um, the U.S. government has leverage. They could, <clears throat> they could push Equatorial Guinea to change, but they won't. Saudi Arabia, uh, there's some influence, but the Saudis have so much money that, you know, you're not going to push them around. Um, Ken, I wanted to circle back around and talk about Israel for a second, and I think you made some really salient points that I that I completely agree with. Um, and in fact, I would go even further. A lot of the anti-Semitism I see in the world is coming from folks that actually totally 100% support Israel. So it's kind of this perverse thing, but it's definitely a fact. A lot of the Trump people are, you know, they're white nationalists, and they don't like Jews, but they are fine with the state of Israel for a whole host of geopolitical reasons. And I think, you know, and even Richard Spencer, that whole episode with um, Ye- uh, Yair Netanyahu, Netanyahu's baby son, where they were agreeing with each other, it was just bizarre to me. But, but again, they were saying we both agree with an ethno state. But separate from that, I wanted to ask you um, APAC has been pushing anti-BDS legislation here in the United States. Um, they've gone state by state. They're trying to get it done at the federal level. And I'm really appalled by this because it seems to me that the right of protest is part of our First Amendment rights in this country. And I cannot fathom that the U.S. government or politicians in it are willing to uh, give a let the foreign lobby say to them it's okay to usurp your uh, – citizens' First Amendment rights because we don't like it, because that's sort of how it boils down. What is your opinion on that? Civil rights groups are warning a pair of bipartisan bills targeting boycotts of Israel and Israeli settlements would criminalize free speech and peaceful protests. The Israel Anti-Boycott Act would make it a felony for U.S. citizens to support boycotts of Israel and Israeli settlements punishable by at least a $250,000 fine, with a maximum penalty of a fine of $1 million and 20 years in prison. So far, 46 senators, 31 Republican, 15 Democrat, and 234 Congress members from both sides of the aisle support the legislation. The American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, known as APAC, reportedly helped craft the bill and has made its passage one of the group's top lobbying priorities for the year. I support divesting from Israel. I, I support it. Um, look, Israel, sadly, it's very sad. I don't know if it's, you know, because Jews suffered for so long that they're imposing on the Palestinians. You know, they're not putting them in ovens, thank God, but yeah. they are, you know, Gaza and the West Bank are concentration camps. Yeah, they are. It's appalling and it's shameful as a Jew for me that a Jewish state would do that. You know, I don't know whether they... <clears throat> You know, I, I, yeah, this is not a justification at all. There's no justification. I mean, you could say, you know, the World War One terms imposed on Germany justify the Holocaust. No. No way, yeah. Um, no, no, no way. I mean, you know, I would say, in the same sense, it's not a justification because I am—I will denounce it with every breath. Mm-hmm. But um, the uh, Jews suffered a lot. They did face the Holocaust, and so there's a paranoia. Um, on their part, which I understand, but, you know, the best way to deal with it is to get along with your neighbors, not to make them your worst enemies. And so they have resorted to the worst kind of stuff. Um, It's an apartheid state for Palestinians. It's an awful situation. And so, 
you know, just as South Africa deserves to be divested from, I believe people should be divesting uh, from Israel and not supporting it. It's the same way that, look, I'm not trying to change the subject, but I, um, I almost never buy anything. Uh, I mean, it's 99%. Only if, I, mean, I can't even think of the last time I did it, so I, I'm, I'm moving towards 100, but I'm already at 99. I detest Jeff Bezos. Yeah. Trump is going to be gone. You know, whether he's impeached on bogus grounds, you know, if, if it happens, or he resigns in frustration, yeah. um, or he loses in, uh, in 2020, or, his, you know, his two terms end in 2024. He's gone. Yeah. <clears throat> Bezos is a bigger threat than the other American oligarchs. Yeah. And so I don't shop at Whole Foods. I don't use Amazon. I do my best not to take, the problem is you don't even know what Amazon owns, but to my knowledge, I haven't contributed a, a penny to Jeff Bezos in a long time. Yeah. And it, it's the, they're committing human rights abuses against their domestic and foreign employees. Yeah. I will not <clears throat> cater to Jeff Bezos. I will not help Jeff Bezos. And in the same way, I don't like to give money. I don't know. No, I don't. I haven't been to Israel. Uh, I was in Israel many, many years ago. I mean, I don't want to see how long, because I don't like to talk about my age. It reminds me of mortality. But many years ago, when I was 17 and I turned 18 there, I was there for almost a year. I, um, you know, I went to Kibbutz. Yeah. I had a great time. I, but I do favor a Jewish state as well as a Palestinian state. There was a time, the best solution would have been a two, uh, a two, party, you know, an Israel and Palestinian Uni, Uni state. That's never going to happen now. It's no, too late. It's but I favor a fully independent Palestinian state with the right of return for Palestinians scattered all over the world mm-hmm. and to end the terrible suffering of the Palestinian people. And if, you know, if they don't have a great government, that's not my problem. They deserve self-rule and independence, and I hope they get it. Yeah, and so I don't, so I support investment. And I don't, um, you know, like I said, I haven't been to Israel. I, I, I can't say I would never go. Um, uh, my, my, my daughter went on birthright. <clears throat> you know, for her, it was a free trip to Israel, but she's very skeptical but, <clears throat> uh, about it. Um, but, you know, it was a free trip. If my son wants to do it, my kids are half Jewish and half Dominican. Right. Um, if my son wants to do it when he's a little older, I'm not going to stop him from doing it. I haven't been, I can't say I wouldn't go for a journalism story, but I have great doubts about it because I don't want to travel there. Mm-hmm. So that's my, I mean, when I, you know, I have investments in very little. So to my knowledge, I don't have, I certainly don't have any, you know, I don't have bonds from Israel. I don't have direct investments. I could indirectly that I'm not aware of. Right. Uh, you know, my investments are so minor, but if I, if I was aware that, you know, I mean, I do have <clears throat> a minor retirement, a very minor retirement. You know, if I discovered that companies I um, had, you know, and it's mostly like mutual fund stuff, so it's hard to know. I would not invest in a company that, you know, where Israel was getting money. So. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. You know, I'm a member of Jewish Voice for Peace, and (laughs) I don't, because you, let me tell you this, because I think you probably haven't been paying attention to this. 
We're we're banned from entering Israel now. We're on the same list as Hezbollah. How does this make sense? I didn't I didn't know that that yeah, that is Jewish voice terrible. Is um yeah because we've been you know fighting for look the right of protest is how you make change. This is how you peacefully make change, and and I I feel that Lukud. And I think a home party, which is even more to the right, they're like crazy right. These folks are not in the tradition of Jewish socialism whatsoever. They are, they are very much neo-nationalist, uh, neo-fascist sort of um, policy-wise as far as government. So I think um, the only way that we're going to see any real change is through through these sorts of um outward pushes so but yeah they put mm-hmm. they put jewish vo- voice for peace on there as well so <laughs> well i guess i won't be visiting israel anytime whenever you write a, like i'll write a story about saudi arabia say <clears throat> and it will say um it will say um uh it will say something critical about saudi arabia mm-hmm. And then I'll get a message. You're covering up for Israel. It's like you know you can't write about every topic. I'm also I get you know you know I'm I'm covering up for Turkmenistan or Equatorial Guinea. I haven't written about either for years. Well, actually Turkmenistan for many years. You know you can't write about everything. I don't shy away from it. Um, but I, I write a lot. I mean, but still, like there's not, like I haven't written about most of the countries in the world. So. Uh, but but it is like I actually I'm gonna when you post your podcast I'm going to um, I'm going to uh, uh, put it up and highlight the Israel part of it. Okay. And I'm also uh, I'll think you know in 2019 I'll figure out some way to write. I mean I have written about Israel. It's not like it's a shutout, but um, not as much as I should. Especially being Jewish, I should probably write more. And I, you know, 2019, that'll be one of my goals for 2019. You know, but Ken, to be fair, and I see this a lot on Twitter, I get trolled sometimes with these folks with the triple parentheses because of my last name, you know, and I have Jewish heritage. So I, I know that um, it's it can be very difficult because you get literally get lambasted by both sides. You can't criticize the state of Israel and not get yelled at and called a capo or a traitor by some of these Hasbara sort of... Uh, right, that's true. Israel. You're going to get yelled by them. But on the flip side, there is real anti-Semitism in the world. We There's no denying that this is the case. So you're sort of in a rock and a hard place because you're in this group that's saying both of these things are wrong because they are. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. But neither one of these sides wants to acquiesce to that. And I'm really, the thing that most disturbs me about the entire conversation, though, at the end of the day, are the folks that are pro-Israel but exceedingly anti-Semitic. And it's not just the right wing. I've seen a lot of Clintonite Democrats being saying really anti-Semitic things against Bernie Sanders, for example. I'm highly convinced at this point that their main beef with him is that he's Jewish because they can't... I don't know. I just, you know, you see these posts from, like, J.K. Rowling where she made all of the bankers Jews. Like, where where did Jeremy Cor- Cor- I don't know if you saw this. Jeremy Corbyn made a speech about the oligarchy and the banks. He never, ever, ever said Jewish. But J.K. Rowling did. J.K. Rowling did. Her her denounce was that, was that he was attacking the Jewish people. And I'm, I'm like, no, I'm like, really? 
So mm-hmm. they don't realize that they themselves are being sort of anti-Semitic in, in what, because they're pushing forward these um, tropes, you know, that all Jewish people right. are wealthy bankers or whatever they are. And they don't see how that's sort of embedded in that statement. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Anyway. Well, I, I agree with you. And I'm going to make it a goal for next year to uh, write about Israel and to write critically about Israel. I mean, because there's plenty to do there. So, yeah. So what is your Twitter handle um, for the listeners if they want to follow you on Twitter? And I'll um, put a link to Washington Babylon in the bio so they can go to the site. Please. And I'm on Facebook, too, but Twitter, I'm probably a little more active there. Uh, It's Ken Silverstein 1. 